I invite you now, we have the scripture reading, I invite you to stand for the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from Psalm 130, which is a song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day where we've already begun, been able to uh, sing your praise, to hear from your word, to speak to you from our hearts. And we pray now that as we look into this psalm, that you would help us connect the dots of our lives to the dots of your story and the story that you are writing in Jesus Christ in this world, that through your scripture, our hearts would be attuned to your goodness, to your faithfulness, to the realities of the gospel, and that these would be more real to us from the time that we've spent together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You all hearing me okay? Did I just go out? This is working. It turned off just a second ago. We'll see if this works. Otherwise, I'll go to the guitar mic. Seems that Providence wishes me to be behind a music stand and not out here. Uh, anyways, when I was growing up, uh, we used to go to my grandmother's house, uh, my great-grandmother's house, in a lake up in... Yeah. All right. As I was saying, when I was growing up, we used to go to my great-grandmother's house. Uh, she lived uh, in the upper Michigan, and we would go up there every summer for about a week, and we would spend a week uh, doing everything boating that you can imagine. Uh, tubing, water skiing, wakeboarding, uh, driving around, jumping off boats into the water. It was amazing. When I was about 11 or 12, I had just started kneeboarding, which if you don't know what that is or can't picture it, it's like a surfboard cut in half that then you kneel on, you strap yourself to, and you're pulled around a lake. Well, that summer I had started to get the hang of this kneeboarding thing. If you know anything about kneeboarding, you want to be in fairly tight so that as the boat is hitting the waves and everything, you, you don't just slip out. So one time around the lake, I put the strap on as high up on my legs and as tight as I possibly could. We took off, we started you know, going around the lake, we hit some waves from other boats, and I was bouncing off of them like moguls, kind of. I hit one, turned, and was submerged. 
upside down underwater and I went to pull the strap and it wouldn't move. And I started tugging and pulling and it wouldn't give. And then I started paddling to try to reverse myself and I would get my head up just enough to catch a breath and then I'd flip back under. It was probably only 20, 30 seconds, but it felt like five minutes. Now eventually I, I submerged, I was able to slip out and get out of the water. But I came out to the surface gasping for air. And this is the imagery that Psalm 130 begins, out of the depths, out of the depths. And the question that I think this psalm raises for us is, who can answer us from the depths? Who can help us when our life is sunk, when wave after wave has crashed over us and we feel like we're drowning? And in this psalm, God says very clear to us that his steadfast love will not fail those who cry out to him. So let's unpack this psalm this morning. We're going to think about it in three parts. First, the cry of faith, verses 1 and 2. And then second, the dynamic of faith. And here I'm thinking about what, what does faith do? What does it produce in those who cry out? And we see this in verse 3 through 6. And then finally, the assurance of faith, verses 7 and 8. So the cry, the dynamic, and assurance. First, the cry of faith. Right away, if you look at the text, we see this cry comes from the depths. Verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now this imagery of the depths, it's a reoccurring imagery in the Bible. And it could be, you know, it could be a place, a state of mind, a state of soul, but it's something that we wish that we all could avoid, but in this fallen world, we can't. From the beginning of scripture to the end, references to the deep or the depths are images of terror, danger, chaos, evil, and death. The word is used in the Old Testament with reference to the judgment against Egypt in the Red Sea. So Egypt is swallowed up in the depths, whereas God's people are delivered out of the depths. The imagery is used in Psalm 69, where the writer is crying out to God as he is overwhelmed by his enemies who attack him and persecute him. Psalm 69, verse 1 and 2, read this. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So when we think of the depths, we ought to think of all of the hardships and sufferings in this life, all the miseries and sufferings of living in a fallen world as fallen and sinful people. So this would include everything from the guilt of our own sin and our shame, things that we've done, but also the things and the suffering that we experience in this world in general or that others have done to us. Those situations where we feel caught, trapped, weighed down, gasping for relief. What we see in the opening words of this psalm, in other words, is a perennial human experience. Life becomes overwhelmed. We feel like we're drowning. We're flooded with concerns and stress and anxiety 
and problems and complexities that seem unsolvable. Now, almost three months ago, there was an article in The Guardian. It was titled this, COVID-19 is nature's wake-up call to a complacent civilization. The writer says this, quote, we have been living in a bubble, a bubble of false comfort and denial. In the rich nations, we have begun to believe that we have transcended the material world. The wealth we've accumulated has shielded us from reality. Living behind screens, passing between capsules, our houses, cars, offices, and shopping malls, we persuaded ourselves that contingency had retreated, that we had reached the point all civilizations seek, insulation from natural hazards. Now the membrane has ruptured and we find ourselves naked and outraged. That was three months ago. Think about what has happened since. The COVID-19 continuing, the spread, people dying, the murder of George Floyd, the protests, the anger, the frustration, the continual just unrest. It seems like our world is coming apart at the seams. And I don't know how, how this has hit you or any of these things that have been going on in our, in our world that hit you, but at times, as I've been confronted with them and start to think about them, they overwhelm me. Because I don't have any idea how to fix it. And even if these things weren't happening, right, go back six months ago maybe, we have all sorts of things that pierce the comfortable spaces in our lives. We have our own problems in our jobs, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in ourselves. I want you to locate that feeling, that feeling like you're drowning, like the waters are rising above your head. And I want you to ask this question. When you experience the depths, what do you do? Some of us, I think, are venters. This is me. We vent, we complain, we have to talk it out, we have to express it. You can ask my wife, I do this all the time. Some of us are stuffers, or at least what I call stuffers. You know, we hide, this is not me. We hide, we bury, we stuff it until we can't. If you look at the first six words of this psalm, there is nothing unique here. Out of the depths I cry. That is universal. What is unique is how that line ends. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The writer doesn't stuff it, doesn't just vent to the people around him. The writer speaks to the Lord. And this isn't one of those cries, you know, maybe, maybe you've done, maybe you know of people who have done, the kind of cry that's like a flare up to an unknown God, the sort of, you know, hey God, things are really bad. If you're there, whoever you are, could you do something? The writer is calling out to Yahweh. Whenever you see the Lord, all in capital letters in your Bible, this is the Hebrew, words for, the Hebrew word for God's personal covenant name. This is the God who revealed himself to Israel. The God who bound himself to his people. The God who delivered his people at the Red Sea, out of the depths. The writer is crying out to a person. This isn't 
crying out to an idea. This is crying out to a person who can be known. It's like when I came out of the water that day, I didn't come out yelling, is anyone there? Can anyone help me? I came out yelling, Dad. And my eye was zoomed in on the back of the boat where my dad was about to jump in the water to come and get me. The cry of faith cries to the personal God who reveals himself in scripture. A God who can be known. A God who is active in this world and in our lives. And I think it's also important for us to, to consider that what this psalm says about the depths and the experience of the depths really reveals the folly of looking to anyone or anything else to save you from the depths, to get you out of that. Because in one sense, you could imagine, right, you could have everything you always dreamed of. You could have the family and the success and the relationships and the security and the stock portfolio. You could have all of that. And then in an instant, the depths can swallow it up. The psalmist points us to the Lord because the Lord alone is outside and can answer us from the depths. Second, let, let's think about the, the dynamic of faith. And here, what I'm trying to get at is, what does faith in Yahweh produce? What does it do in us? If we have really cried out to him, what begins to happen in our lives? And if you look at verses 3 through 6 in this passage, I think you see that dynamic of faith. You see this movement where those who cry out in faith to God, their lives are marked by a humility. Verse 3 by a reverent fear, verse 4, and by what I'm going to call a future orientation, verses 5 and 6. So let's think about each of these. First, humility. There's a recognition of our guilt and our sin. There is a humility before others. The person who cries out to Yahweh, that is really to say a Christian, a real Christian, as we can see in this text, is someone who can honestly say, Lord, I'm not fundamentally different from others. I'm, I'm not better. I'm not of a, of a different class. I'm not morally superior. The words of verse 3, Lord, if you marked iniquities, who could stand? If you've cried out to God from the depths, if you've cried out and asked for his mercy, there has to be this recognition that you're someone who not only suffers from the depths, but you're actually someone who has participated in the brokenness in this world. And that in various ways, we bear culpability. For a minute, I want you to just think about the opposite. Think about the contrast. The opposite of the kind of honesty and humility that we see in verse 3. The opposite that basically says, no, I am fundamentally different, and I am fundamentally better. And think about the destructive nature of this. I think this is something, from a distance, we can all see. Right? So think about it when it shows up in relationships, like, say, a marriage. When someone can't or won't acknowledge what they bring into that relationship. Think about it at work. If someone won't acknowledge 
the role that they played in a bad decision for a team. Think about it when it shows up in leaders, where people won't acknowledge fault or blame. In all sorts of ways, sometimes known and intentional, and other times unknown and we're blind to, we fail to live into what it means to be a human being made in God's image. We fail to love God and love others. We sin. And I'd like you to think for a minute, again, regardless of even what you think about the Bible or what you believe about the Bible, can you see how valuable humility is and how needed it is, especially at a time like right now? Those who cry out to Yahweh are marked by humility. Let's think about this also. Those who cry out to Yahweh are marked by this reverent fear. If you look at verse 4, this is one of those verses that if you just stop and think about it, it sounds kind of strange. The writer has just acknowledged his sin, and then he says this, But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. It sounds kind of like he's saying, forgiveness leads to fear. What is he talking about? When you're afraid, right, think about it. When you are afraid, often that probably means if we're afraid of someone or something, we're afraid of what that, that person or thing can do to us. I have little kids. All of us one, at one time were little kids. Do you remember being afraid of monsters? My children have just recently become afraid of monsters. Monsters under their bed. When we're afraid of monsters under our bed, what do we do? When I was little, it means you hide under your covers, even when it's really hot. You don't take the covers off. If you have to go to the bathroom, you hold it. You certainly do not want to summon a monster. And yet that is, this, the psalmist is summoning God, so this fear has to be very different. And then in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist says that he longs for God with all of his soul. What's going on here? I think we can relate to this. Think about if you've ever received a costly gift. You know, maybe you were 16 and your parents buy you a car or they give you the keys to the nice family car. How do you hold those keys? Or think about if you've ever been given something, you know, something from a parent or a grandparent, something that was handed down in your family. Maybe an instrument. How do you relate to that? There's a sense in which we hold it with a carefulness and a kind of fear. And I think something like that is what's going on here because forgiveness if we understand what forgiveness is, forgiveness is so costly because forgiveness costs the life of the Son of God. And so coming to Him and knowing that you have no place to stand and yet being received and accepted and forgiven ought to produce this sort of joyful fear, joy because you are overwhelmed that He welcomes you in and He receives you and loves you and fear because you do not want to continue sinning against him and sinning against his love for you. 
those who cry out to Yahweh are also marked by what I'm calling a future orientation. If you look at verses 5 and 6, where the psalmist writes, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. I've chosen to use the phrase future orientation instead of hope, hopes in the passage, but I think sometimes when we use the word hope, the way we use it is often we mean a wish, something that we, we really hope will come about, but we have varying levels of certainty and confidence that it's actually going to happen. The writer, when he's talking about this future orientation, verses 5 and 6, we see that there's an active kind of waiting, and there is a hope that's rooted in God's very words and promises, and then he gives this great image, this image of watchmen, watching over a city, waiting for the coming morning. This is much more than a vague hope. This is a life that is increasingly shaped by and oriented around God's promised certain future. This idea always makes me think when Aaron was pregnant with Liam, that's our first child, our lives were actively waiting for, hoping in, and oriented around this certain coming future. So we traded in our broken down cars for a nice, reliable Subaru. We had the car seat in the car. We had, you know, the crib and the room decorated and you know, the thousand other things that babies need. We had, you know, the overnight bag ready to go. Though Liam was not born yet, anyone who came into our lives would have been able to look and say, these people are about to have a child. And that's the kind of waiting that we're talking about here. Building our lives now around a certain future. I love the way one writer on this passage points this out. He says this, In picturing the watchman, the psalmist chooses as his illustration a hope that will not fail. Night may seem endless, but morning is certain and it's time determined. Let me ask, what do you hope in? Or maybe to spin it a little bit, think about this. What do you wait for? What are you willing to wait for? What future hope is your life built around and shaped around? I think we can see it oftentimes. You know, we just look at how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we dream about what I want to do this day, what I want to do this week, what I want to do this month, in the next five years, in the next ten years, what, what do I really long for? Do our lives increasingly evidence this future orientation to God's coming kingdom? You might be here, you might be listening today and realize I've never cried out to God. Not like this. This dynamic is not evident in my life. And if that's you, the Lord would say to you today, cry out to me. Take these words of this psalm and speak to the Lord from your heart. 
If you've cried out to the Lord, if you're a Christian, this dynamic never stops, right? In this life, this is our psalm. In the midst of distress, we cry to the Lord. We see our sin. We see things that we didn't see a year ago, that we didn't see 10 years ago. We re-experience the forgiveness of God in and through Jesus. We long to be near to him. And our lives begin to have this deeper and deeper shaped life of future orientation. Then we should do all of this because of this assurance of faith in verses 7 and 8. The psalmist, up to this point, has been talking to God. And now, in a sense, he turns to the congregation and he says, Y'all, hope in the Lord? And here's why. Because with Yahweh, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Steadfast love. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones captures the richness of this Hebrew word hesed with her phrase, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is why we ought to cry out to the Lord. Because his love is stubborn and it's steadfast. And it is unflinching toward those who cry out to him. In verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Meaning, he will ransom us. He will buy our lives back. Now, someone has to be thinking or asking the question, how can I know? How can I know? What if the worst happens? What if the depths swallow me and I never resurface? What if I never recover from my disease? What if there are things that have happened in my life, whether it's from choices that I have made or things that have happened or other people have done to me that make me feel like it can never be made right and I can never be healed from that? How can I know that the Lord's steadfast love will redeem me? And the answer to that question is because the God that we cry out to is not only the God who answers us from the depths, but is the God who dove into the depths to get us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, dove into the depths from the cradle to the cross. Think about it. He was born poor. Jesus Christ was an ethnic minority. He lived in our world. He lived in all of the misery, in all of the depths. And as he went to the cross, and as he hung on the cross, the evil of the world, the darkness of the world, the injustice of the world, the sin of the world, our sin was poured out on him until in a sense he drowned bearing the weight. And from the depths he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he received no answer. He came to bear the cost 
of our redemption. The cost of our redemption is high. And he came and he took it all. And as he was raised from the dead, he is the only one who can honestly look you in the face and say, your suffering will never go deeper than my suffering. I understand. Your sin and your brokenness will never go so deep into the depths that I cannot bring you out to live with me forever. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and his resurrection is the guarantee. It is the proof that with the Lord is steadfast love and plentiful redemption, and he will redeem his people from all of their iniquities. Will you cry out to him?